But much like last week, we're going to have three different uh, speakers during this time and different themes. So we were talking about what we would do for our time in worship. And, and he said, well, I want to I pick songs that remind us of who God is in the midst of what our country is going through. So if you look at the, the, the bulletin, you see songs I get as well with my soul. We can be reminded of no matter the, the pain that we're going through, the hurt that's, that's taking place, we can still have a wellness in our soul. Great is thy faithfulness. Sometimes people can question, where's God in all of this? And yet we're reminded by that song that God is faithful. Hallelujah, something we can repeat over and over again, our great God. What a good set this morning, Tim. Thank you for guiding us in that. Thank you for reminding us that in the midst of all of this, God's still in charge. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even before we open your word, we, we come before you uh, as, as a people, as a nation hurting. Uh, we were once again reminded this past week of, of the violence uh, amongst us, of the wickedness in, in humanity's hearts. We were once again reminded of our need for you. And God, I want to I stand before this group and ask your forgiveness. God, would you forgive uh, your people? for what's in their hearts that leads to things like this. Your your scripture tells us if we would humble ourselves, if we would seek your face, if we would pray that you would heal our land. God, we need healing. We are thankful that you are still in charge, that you are still great, that you are still faithful, that we can still say hallelujah to you. We're thankful that in the midst of all of this, the questions, the concerns, the the wrestlings that we go through and that we go through with people who don't know you, we're thankful that we can still say it is well with our soul. This morning, Lord, as we open your word to us, would you speak loudly? And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the greatest joys in life is to get to know people. Even for the introvert, there's something deep and rich about diving into the depth of of somebody else, getting to know who they are. Now, for the extrovert, that's like eating an entire bag of Skittles, like, you know, the large bag of Skittles. They love getting to know people. Something great about that. There's something great about getting to know people who you've already known for a long time. You know, when you get that, oh, I never knew you. Or I never knew that about you, and I've known you for 40 years. That's fun. That's fun. I had that happen to me this last week. Um, So there is something rich about getting to know people. And in a sense, that's what we've been doing over these last four weeks in our sermon series. Uh, We've titled it uh, Discover Us. And what we've been doing is essentially a conversation with you guys getting a chance to get to know us. For those who are newer to First Church, It's good because you get to see who we are, kind of where we're going, why we are. For those that have been here for a long time, you get to be reminded of who we are. And perhaps there's been a time where you've said, oh, I didn't know that about you guys. So that's what we've been doing. In this this series, we've we've talked some depth. We've talked about why we exist. And that is to love God, love people, and make disciples. We've talked about where we think God is taking us. We believe he's taking us to, he's calling us to be church for our neighbors. And that can be those right outside our doors, or that can be those around where we live or where we work or 
those who we rub shoulders with. A couple weeks back, we talked about how are we going to do this? And we do this in a threefold way. We gather, we grow, and we go. We gather for worship, we grow in relationship, and we go on mission. Now, last week, we started talking about the commitments, the, the values that would guide us as we are heading in this direction that God calls us to go in. And we talked about three commitments last week. They were, see if I can remember them, prayer, stewardship, and the Bible. Those are things we said last week that we are committed to. This morning we give four more. And in the same way we did last week, I'll share one, Jason will share, Elena will share, and I'll come up and wrap us up at the end. So this morning we start with the fourth of seven being social concern. As a church, as a group of people that meet here on the corner of Ash and Cortland, we want to be committed to social concern. In your bulletin it says, the world is a hurting place. So we do all we can to bring the love of God into the mess of life in our homes, our city, our country, and our world. Social concern. We are committed to this. I don't think anybody's going to argue with me if I say that the world is a hurting place. Correct? I mean, you just look at the last month. There's earthquakes shaking, hurricanes ravaging, militaries arguing, tyrants leading, torturers following, freemen, Las Vegas... The world is a hurting place. I saw a startling statistic this past week. January 1st to October 2nd, 274 days. I saw a statistic that said in those 274 days, there has been 270 mass shootings in our nation alone. That means that we've had three or four days without it. Our country is a hurting place. But our world is hurting also. Did you know that in our world there's 45 million slaves today? That's more than in any other time in human history. Every 30 seconds a child is sold into sex slavery. Our world is a hurting place. Poverty. Poverty hurts. Nearly half of the people, over half of the people in the world, over 3 billion, live on $2.50 a day or less. 1.3 of those billion live on a buck and a quarter a day. According to UNICEF, 22,000 kids will die each day due to poverty. You add the whole water bit into that also. 5,000 kids a day, nearly 2 million a year will die because they don't have clean water. Our world is a hurting place. Amen? I mean, it shouldn't be, but it is. You come back to just our country. There's over 25 million people in the U.S. that are suffering from depression. Over half of those people, over half of the suicides take place with people who are clinically depressed. You add those who struggle with alcohol into that mix, and it bumps the number up to 75%. The world is a hurting place, and as a church, as a group of people, who meet on the corner of Ash and Cortland, we are committed to doing something about that. Why? Why? Because I believe that God's heart breaks when he sees the world hurting. His heart breaks over the brokenness that he sees in the world he created and called good. Now, more than just his heart breaking for it, I think his blood starts to boil a bit When his church, his people, the people who call him their God, don't do anything about it. I think his blood starts to boil when that happens. In fact, we can see that in Isaiah chapter 58. We've talked about this chapter in the past. I'll just kind of summarize it. Verses 1 through 4, God tells Isaiah, get the people's attention. 
Make them listen. Tell them that I've seen their, their attempts at worship. They, uh, they seem delighted to worship me. They act like a righteous nation. They pretend to want to be near me. They fast and say, why aren't you listening? Well, God says this to them. He says, the kind of fasting I want, this is Isaiah 58, verse 6, is this, free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free. Remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from your relatives who need your help. Essentially, God is saying, look, the world is a hurting place and I want my church to do something about it. That means as a church, as first church, we're committed to it. Now, if this was the only time in Scripture where God said something like this, maybe we could pass it off as, well, he woke up on the wrong side of the bed. But it wasn't. I mean, you can see this is God's heart because his son, Jesus, his heart breaks in the same way. We look at what we talked briefly about last week. When Jesus preaches his, his sermon in front of the, in front of the church, he, he quotes Luke chapter 4, or it's in Luke chapter 4, and he quotes Isaiah. I'll just look at verse 18. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Now, perhaps that's to the over three million people who live in poverty. And perhaps the good news is, hey, your lack of, your lack of wealth is not a sign of God's disfavor. It's an invitation for his church to help. Verse 18 continues, Jesus said, He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released. And oftentimes we say the captivity from our sin. Yes, that's true. But what about the 45 million that are enslaved today? I think Jesus has said, church, go help take care of that. Third part of verse 18, Jesus said, He sent me to proclaim that the blind will see. We know Jesus touched eyes that couldn't see and opened them to where they could. But that wasn't the only physical ailment that he addressed. And that's not the only physical thing he wants us to address. <laughs> Water, sickness, other things. The last part of verse 18, Jesus said, He has sent me to proclaim that the oppressed will be set free. Depression is a form of oppression. So was bullying. So was racism. Jesus has said, go and do something about it, church. So First Church, our hearts break for this, and we're committed to doing something about it. We get to play a part. So social concern, the world is a hurting place. The rest of our phrase says we do all we can to bring the love of God into the mess of life, into our homes, our city, our country, and our world. So how are we doing this? First Church, how are we doing this? Well, let's start by looking at our homes, and I'm going to give some specific examples. Uh, where is Stacia? Is she here today? She's in the nursery. Okay. I meant to ask her if I could share this. I'm going to share it anyways. Recently, um, <laughs> Stacia came to us about six weeks ago and said, hey, you know, because she leads worship for us about once a month. She says, hey, Sunday mornings are difficult for me at home. I've got two kids. My husband's working on Sunday mornings, and, and I need my kids to see the love of God on Sunday mornings as well as every other morning. And if I'm leading worship, it's a struggle. So we said, bless you. We want to bring the love of God into your life, so don't lead anymore. And she was set free from that. That's bringing the love of God into our home so that her kids can see a mommy that loves God and loves them even on a Sunday morning. Now, we do all we can as a family to walk through struggles in marriage. 
We've had those in here. Now, we're doing, a, we're doing that, that marriage seminar tonight. Laugh your way to a better marriage. It's using some humor to address a, a, an issue that's real. So as a church, we do all we can to walk with people through that, to, to bring restoration, to bring hope and healing. But we also know there's other times where the marriages don't, don't work. So as a church, we try and grieve with, weep with, mourn with those whose marriages come to an end. There's other ways we're trying to bring the love of God into our home as well. We do small groups and growth groups so that God's love can be felt in community. For the women of our church, we do 31 gifts and secret sisters so that they can have relational connections. We're striving to pair up every student in our youth group with an adult mentor so that the adults can bring the love of God into the hurt of adolescence. We live in a world that's full of mess, and it happens in our own homes. So as a church, we're trying to bring the love of God into the mess of our own homes. Now, First Church is also trying to bring the love of God into the mess of our town. We financially support the jail ministries. But more than just giving money, we send the closest thing we have to an Apostle Paul into the jails every week. We send Ron Curry, and he is literally bringing the love of God into people who are held captive. We financially support Youth for Christ, a ministry that works with disadvantaged and low-income students in West Central and in Hilliard. But more than just give them money, we back somebody like Eric Johnson who gives his time and his sweat and his tears. And I've never met a person who loves snot-nosed punk junior high kids more than him. Thank you. I was waiting for that. Bringing the love of God into the mess of life in our city We serve a meal to our friends without homes once a month in the -the on-the-ground ministry. Many of you support the Bite to Go ministry, which give kids who don't have enough money food over the weekends. There are others of you who are serving without a line item in our budget. Places like Christ Kitchen, Salvation Army. We are doing all we can as a church to bring the love of God into the mess of our city. Now, we're doing all we can to bring it into the mess of our country as well. We've done a mission trip to a Native American uh, reservation years ago. We've got people who are specifically foster adopting. We've partnered with a sexual integrity ministry that is huge in Spokane, but is national also. In this last year, they went global. Project 619. We are impacting our country. This group of people of 120 to 150 is making a difference, and we're doing that in the world as well. If we could Skype in um, Peterson or Daphne and ask them, hey, is, is what our kids give to you in the Peterson and Daphne jar, is it making a difference? They would say yes. How we, we've got people working with the refugee crisis uh, through World Relief. We've got Elizabeth who teaches refugees ESL classes. We've got missionaries in Papua New Guinea. We've got others who are en route to Honduras. They're, they're taking the long route because they're dealing with cancer right now. We are touching the world with God's love with this small group of people in the corner of Ash and Cortland. We are committed to social concern because we recognize the world is a hurting place and we want to do all we can to bring the love of God into the mess of life in our homes, our city, our country, and our world. We're committed to that. That's commitment number four. Jason is going to bring commitment number five. Some of you know that I like to get to know people by asking questions. So I have some questions this morning, just by a raise of hand, help me to uh, uh, understand. I know a lot of our 
youngest kids have uh, stepped out of the room. But by raise of hands, how many of you are age 20 or younger? You ain't 20, sister, but she is. <laughs> uh, how many of you, uh, again, by raise of hands, are, uh, let's say, 75 or older? If you can still raise your hand, get up there. There you go. Good job. Good job. How many of you um, uh, are males? If she has to tell you to raise your hand, Art, it, it defeats a lot of the purpose. <laughs> How many are women? How many are, are, um, have a high school diploma or less? <laughs> and we know it, brother. We know it. How many of you have a college degree or higher? Uh, how, many, um, how many have been involved at First Church for five years or less? How many have been here for, I don't know, 40 years or more? Very good. How many, uh, how many English is your native language? Oh, don't put your hand up, Bill. Uh, you're, you're the next one. For how many of us, English is not our, our first or our native language? How many, uh, how many of us love Jesus? And how many of us want to know God more and more? So, you see, we are a diverse group, but yet we have some common pursuits. In maybe its broadest sense, that is the definition of a family. Talking about core commitments, and for us, God has called us as a congregation to be committed to family. Now, if you're single or you don't have little kids at home or whatever, don't think we're kicking you out. That's not what we're talking about today. God has called us to be a family. And just like maybe your biological family, a church family, there's a lot of differences but there are essential commonalities. There are things that we share that make us family. And just like your biological family, the church family is all sizes, all shapes, all colors, all genders, all interests. But there are things that we share just like a family who might share a name. Oh, what graphic did you pick for me? It wasn't his creepy with that big eye staring at you. I thought that was creepy. I was. It was cool. I want contacts like that. It can't be both. In my world, it can. So, see, sometimes even in families, you have a crazy aunt. So there are essential things that we share in common, maybe a, a, a shared name, a shared worldview, and at the heart of it, a loyalty to one another. And like families, we share a, a lingo or a jargon or a way of doing things that maybe don't make sense first. I was just thinking today as we were moving through the service, if you are new to this family, you probably thought, what? 
Uh, we talked about how I believe in the Catholic Church, and you thought, I thought this was a, a, a free Methodist church. Well, that's part of our lingo. It's not the Roman Catholic Church, the small c, meaning the whole family of God, the body of Christ across the world. Or, or what was that one song we were singing? If Satan should buffet? I don't know. Is he up at Golden Corral? No. We have our own lingo, and, and sometimes it can be confusing. If Satan, Satan should buffet, if he should, you know, make life hard for you. Or, or, or uh, even the fact that we stand and sing together. If you weren't in this family, probably the last time you did that was in sixth grade music class. Why do we do those things? Well, there's reason behind all of them, and it's a shared experience as a family. Now, some congregations, some churches out there, God has called them to have a very specific, narrow focus. He has placed them in a time and a place to reach uh, maybe a very unique, specific subgroup, uh, cowboys or bikers or homeless or whatever, a, a narrow group. At this point, at this time, that's not who God has called First Church to be focused on a very narrow, specific subgroup, but rather to be a family that embraces the full spectrum of life, every age, every background, different points on the spiritual journey, different points of political opinion, but yet all unified around a common cause. And for us, at the heart of it, that is knowing and growing in Christ. And we show that by what Jesus said in Scripture. Listen, in uh, John chapter 13, he put it this way, and I think this is really what it is to be a family. So now, I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. I don't know about your family, but in mine, and I think most, there are days you're not always happy with family members. There's days you don't agree. There's days you are sure you were drug home by wolves. It gets better, sister, really. But at the heart of it, we love each other, and we will defend each other, and we're loyal to each other. Jesus says that. Love each other. Let the world know because of the way you love each other, they're going to say, there's something different about those people. They're a family. They're not just spectators who come to the same store at the same time. They're a family, but they're not clones. They're not identical, unique, but around a common core. Families have their issues. Families have challenges. As a funeral director, I have been privileged to see that every family is screwed up. No, we'll wait. 
every family has their challenges, and those come out in stressful times. And so I see that in a lot of people's lives. And so it is in our family. We have our issues. We have our challenges. But we don't give up on one another. You love each other. You seek to grow, to be with each other through the hurts and the struggles and the joys of life. And just like your biological family, think of it, families aren't closed systems. By nature, families change and grow over time. Maybe there's a new birth. Maybe uh, someone is adopted. Maybe there's a marriage and, and you bring in in-laws. Uh, there are deaths. The family unit is forever changing and shifting and growing and shrinking. And so it is in the church family. There's births. There's welcoming new people in. There's people moving, dying, circumstances of life changing. But we seek to grow together. It is not a closed group. And as such, we at First Church need to remember this is a living family that's always changing, and so we should expect newcomers. We should be looking to welcome folks who maybe have never been here before. We should make room for them in our lives, in our social groups, and even in the rows that we tend to sit in. The bar for joining the family is not high. The fact that you are here this morning, you are family, and we are glad to be together. And we make room for you at the table. But we always, those of us who've been in the family maybe a while, we have to remember that mindset to welcome in, to add people to our family that this is not a closed group, a, a secret society, a, 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 a group of uh, clandestine people. So welcome. Get to know. Love. Sharpen. Cry with one another. Even if our outward differences seem great, at the foot of the cross, we are all one family with what is essential we share in common. We love each other, and we seek to bring out the best for each other. That's family, and that is who God is calling us to be. I'm glad to be part of this family. Thank you. Elena. James and I called each other, so hopefully you can add some color to this group. Yeah. It's, my, it's my goal in life. Really? Yeah, always. Oh. Hi. Thank you, Jason. Uh, so our next core commitment that I'm going to be talking about is connected. You might kind of wonder, well, what does that mean? Um, when we were, as a leadership, talking about what we thought were core commitments. We came up with this language. We said, you cannot be a follower of Jesus in isolation. We live, we work, we play in relationship. And I would add to that that we worship in relationship and we grow in relationship as well. 
We as humans were made to be connected to one another. We were made in God's image, and God is a trinity. It's something that's hard for us to, to wrap our minds around sometimes, but you can't separate this concept of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They're connected in a way that is mysterious but, um, but real, and we are an image of God. And so that's part of who we are is this need, this, um, this reality that we are made to be in relationship with one another. So that's what I'm talking about when I say connectedness is a core value. Now, God, when he first created Adam, here's a little more evidence from the Bible about this need to be connected. He looked at Adam and he said, it's not good for this man to be alone. So he made Eve to be a companion, to be a helper, so that, that they, they would not be lonely, they would not be on their own. And the scripture doesn't talk about people going off and living in the wilderness by themselves for the end of their, to the end of their days. It talks about, you know, sometimes people would go off for a time, for a reason. Moses went up on the mountain to get the, the law from God, but he returned to that community, that connectedness. Jesus went off into the desert for 40 days before his ministry began, but he returned. And we as a people need that return. We need to be connected to each other. And we can find lots of evidence from the Bible about the importance of connectedness. I'm just going to read a few different verses here for you. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 says, Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep each other warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And then Proverbs 27:17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Clearly, we need each other. The book of 1 Corinthians, we read some more about what connectedness looks like in a church setting. In chapter 12, Paul compares the church to a body. He talks about a physical body, saying that our body is made up of many parts and that each part has an important function, but that they don't function separately. In verse 21 and following, he says this, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, these parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. The parts of the body that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, 
if one part or sorry but that its parts should have equal concern for each other if one part suffers every part suffers with it if one part is honored every part rejoices with it now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it so again there's that idea that we need this concern for one another. We are all connected to each other. And if one of us is going through something, that connectedness means that we all go through it together and we lift each other up. If one of us falls, we're there to pick the other up. Now, a lot of times when people talk about this passage that I just read, they emphasize the fact that everyone has a different gift and that each gift is important, and that is so true. But I think that it's important to recognize that Paul is also talking about this idea of connectedness. He says, God designed his church to be diverse and unified, and that each individual member needs to rely on the others and be concerned with the welfare of the others. Now, God gives us still more pictures of church connectedness from the book of Acts. He gives us this description of what the early church looked like. In Acts 2, 42 through 47, Luke, the author, tells us lots of things about this early church. He says that they were devoted to the teaching of the apostles and to prayer. They were devoted to breaking bread together. They were all together and they held all their possessions in common. They sold their property and their possessions to care for those who were in need. They met together regularly in the temple courts, and they shared meals together, and they praised God together. And I think as a church, we need to be considering what aspects of this biblical connectedness we're doing well and where we can improve. And I'm not going to try and tell us that we all need to sell our stuff and build a commune and live together, because I don't, I don't think that's what, what the scripture is saying that kind of living that was right for the early Christians, and that was their context. They lived in a world where that was necessary for them, um, and we're not in the same circumstances. But I do think we need to be thinking about what principles we can glean from that biblical account and, the, and then apply those to our 21st century church. Now here at First Church, one of our distinguishing characteristics is the fact that we have this widespread, this wide range of ages and um, demographics. And this, this idea of intergenerational connectedness is something that traditionally we have placed a great deal of value on. Those of us who are younger have so much that we can learn from the older generations those people who have faithfully followed Christ for decades. They have so much wisdom to give us. And those of us who are older can also still be blessed by the younger. The younger generations need to be thinking about how can we care for and love and provide for those who have gone before us and who have brought us up in the faith. How can we foster that connectedness? Now, going forward, it's important for us to continue to cherish the love and the wisdom and the unique experiences that each one of us offers each other. We need to be 
doing some investigation. We need to be asking questions like Jason said. That, that connectedness is something that God wants for his church, for his global church and for this church. And for that reason, it's something that we are going to continue to make a core commitment for First Church. Thank you. Remember at the beginning of the service, I held up this little card and said, grab it and fill it out right. What's it called? A connection card. That's on purpose. It's one of our core values. It's more than just a way for us to get your information so we can send you a postcard and write you an email. We want to have an opportunity to truly connect. Uh, the staff prays for the prayer requests every week that is written down, and we do our best to follow up with the ways you guys are wanting to connect. All right, everybody stretch for a second. Just move around. Huh? No, don't stand. You want to stand? Okay, everybody stand for just a second. I've got 10 more minutes, but I know that we've been sitting here for a while, so go ahead and stand if you need to. Move around just a second. Ah. Oh. All right, you're welcome. You're welcome. All right, we're talking about commitments that we as a church have. We've talked about seven, three of those so far today, and we finish up with our seventh. We are committed as a church to holistic faith. Holistic faith. Uh, that's a big word that means this. Following Jesus impacts every area of our life. Following Jesus impacts every area of our life, and we strive to be Jesus-centered and Spirit-led always. Now, the first part of that is easy to explain. Following Jesus impacts every area of our life. We do our best not to segment, not to separate Jesus into his own little Sunday morning box and then, you know, maybe our five-minute devotions throughout the week. We realize that everything we do should be touched by Christ. Our attitude when we drive, the TV shows that we watch, the ways we interact with other people, the unseen portions of our thought life, the ways we care for aging parents, the ways we treat kids who continue to relearn the same lesson over and over. Anything that we do should be touched by Christ. Okay? So take a moment in your own mind and think of one thing, one part of your life. It can be big. It can be small. It can be, uh, make you happy. It can be, make you sad. Just one thing. You got it? Jesus affects that area. It's as simple as that. That is holistic faith. The Apostle Paul was excited when he wrote the church in uh, Colossae, and he said this. He said, the same good news that is going out all over the world came to you, and it's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives. Just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard it and understand the truth about God's wonderful grace. Notice that Paul didn't say it's, it's changing people's quiet times or changing their, their song selection on a Sunday morning. He said it's changing their lives, all of them. Following Jesus impacts everything about us, all facets of our life. Now, the last part of the phrase we have on your, on your bulletin is that we strive to be Jesus-centered and Spirit-led always. Jesus-centered. When I think of this, I think of 1 John 2, verse 6. It says, those who say they live their lives as God, or live in God, should live their lives as Jesus did. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Being Jesus-centered is more than just thinking about Jesus a lot, right? It's more than just when you almost get in a rear end saying, oh, sweet Jesus, thank you. You know, or more than just when you find that parking spot near the store thanking Jesus, or more than just praying before meals, or, or more than just having a picture of Jesus up in your prayer closet, or if you're, if you're really bold out in your living room. 
Following Jesus affects everything. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Christ did. Now, when you really boil that down, it boils down to obedience. Because Christ obeyed God. And in, in context, that's actually what this passage in 1 John is talking about. 1 John 2, verse 3 through 6 says, We can be sure that we know God if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. We should live in obedience. Now, Jesus lived in obedience, and it wasn't easy. Philippians 2 talks about when Jesus appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, and that landed him on the cross. We must obey, not to earn our salvation, but as evidence of our salvation. You know, there was a book published in 1896 that sold over 30 million copies. It was titled, In His Steps. A lot of you know about it. Main character in the story is is named Reverend Henry Maxwell, and he's the pastor of First Church of Raymond, the fictitious town of Raymond. Now, the pastor challenges his congregation not to do anything for a whole year without first asking the question, what would Jesus do? That's where we got the idea for that bracelet. 1999, I was sitting in a class at Whitworth, and a bunch of smart theologians were there, and then I was sitting off to the side, and they were debating this book. And they were saying, no, 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 that's the wrong question. We, we should be asking questions like, what did Jesus already accomplish? Or what has his atonement done for what I just did? And maybe he shouldn't even be asking questions in the first place. And I sat there thinking, if we took that question seriously, it would rock our worlds. It would. It would make us truly Jesus-centered. And being Jesus-centered means living in obedience. Now, so we strive to be Jesus-centered and spirit-led Always, spirit-led, Psalm 143, verse 10. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your gracious spirit lead me forward on firm footing or on level ground. Sounds nice, right? Firm footing, level ground. Doesn't sound like too much of a challenge? (laughs) If we're truly spirit-led, you know what it means? Living in obedience. Living in obedience. You search the scriptures for what it means to be spirit-led. Read Romans 8 at home, all of it. You're going to see the word spirit in that chapter alone 20 times, and you're going to see the ideas of sin and obedience numerous times. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll read just a couple of snippets for you. Verse 4, 5, and 6. Jesus did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please God. Letting the Spirit control your minds leads to life and peace. This entire chapter is talking about living a life where you are led by the Spirit, which leads you to get rid of sin out of obedience to God. The chapter says the same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in us. And if we are truly to let that power lead us, we're going to lead changed lives. Changed lives, as Paul talked about in Colossians chapter 1. 
Our lives will change because faith is not something we put in a box. It impacts everything. So what's that look like for us as a church? What's it look like for a second grader, an eighth grader, a senior in college, a, a new mom, a single mom, an empty nester, someone who's living the last days of their life? Now, we could spend hours talking about what it looks like for all of them, but instead we're going to bring up one family and give one example of what holistic faith, look, faith looks like for them. DJ, Elizabeth, I'm going to invite you guys to come forward. Bring, uh, bring the entire row or rows, however many people you brought. We're going to fill the front of, this, uh, front of the sanctuary. If you don't know, these two that got up here first are DJ and Elizabeth. DJ is the tall one. Elizabeth is the less tall one. She is holding somebody we're going to introduce a little bit later. And the rest of those that are coming up, come on up. You guys just get to stand here. And if you want a stool or if it benefit you have a stool, go ahead and grab that. Um, Lainey, you got the microphone? What does it look like to live a holistic faith? Um, Elizabeth is a, uh, a student of Jewish history. She loves the Jewish faith, the Jewish culture. And uh, probably the, the, one of the best verses, one of the most profound verses that they have in that culture is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. It's, it's called the Shema. It says this, Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to the commandments that I'm giving you today. Sounds like holistic faith, yes? Okay, I love God with all of you and obey his commands. It, it goes on. Repeat them again and again to your children. 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 Talk about them when you're at home, when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, when you're getting up. Tie them on your hands, wear them on your foreheads as reminders. Write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. Talk about this faith thing. We're looking at one way we can live a holistic faith. Talk about it. When you're at home, when you're traveling, when you're getting up, when you're going to bed, when put it on your foreheads, your, your hands, your gates, your posts. That covered everything in the Jewish faith. It covers everything today. So here's my question to them right now, okay? DJ and Elizabeth, have you guys done this perfectly with your new baby girl? No. <gasps> no. Which leads us to why we're here, okay? DJ and Elizabeth and I, we got to sit down this past Wednesday to talk about dedicating their daughter. Uh, I'm going to introduce her in a little bit. I'm going to let you introduce your family in just a little bit after this. I asked them, why dedicate your daughter? And I loved Elizabeth's answer. Her answer was this, because we have imperfect faith and we need the help of the body as we grow our daughter in the ways of the Lord. She didn't say it like this, but their imperfect faith needs your imperfect faith so that together we can have a holistic faith that points people to Jesus all the time, specifically that points this beautiful little girl to Jesus. Amen? You guys say that a bunch, okay? Amen. 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 All right. We are going to dedicate this little girl, but before we do, we're going to have DJ introduce everybody. And I love this part because it always puts the, the guy on, on the spot to see if he can remember all the names. Well, the names are no problem, just being clear. So first, um, this is my sister, Sarah. And then two, we have Elizabeth's parents, Nathan and Lois Lind. And then um, Elizabeth's brother, Aaron, and Keenan. And then we have Elizabeth's grandparents, David and Doreen Lind, 
And then we have cousins, uh, Michelle and Josiah Lowry. Perfect. Hey, uh, so I'm not talking to DJ and Elizabeth right now, but to you guys, well done. Come and stand in front of a church that uh, you don't know everybody. Um, and we're so excited to have DJ and Elizabeth as part of our family. Uh, you guys did well. You, you've got a wonderful daughter. Um, you got a great husband. I wish, DJ, your parents could be here also. I'd tell them the same thing. Um, and they are they're, they're goldmine for us. Um, as I ask them questions a little bit later about dedicating their daughter, essentially I'm asking you guys the same things because your role is pivotal in the development of Gwyneth Eve. Okay? So know that. Now, I'm going to talk to Gwyneth Eve for a little bit because she hasn't officially been introduced. So you can see her. She's up there. Is that her? Yeah, that is her. Okay. <laughs> Just checking. All right. She's ready to go to sleep. Well, we're going to see if we can get this. And we're going to do this all without notes because nobody talks to a baby with notes, right? Here we go. I'm going to introduce her. I'm going to walk around just once so you guys can see her. And then we're going to dedicate her. Okay, let's see how good I do with memory. This is Gwyneth Eve Miriam, born September 4th. So five weeks tomorrow. Five weeks tomorrow. Eight pounds, 14 ounces. You just take a look or look up there. Uh, her name, your name, little girl, I'm going to talk to her. You guys just listen. Your name is Gwyneth Eve. And Gwyneth, your parents named you that because they loved the wind sound of the Celtic names. And they have known since before you were around, like early when they started being married, that they would name a little girl Gwyneth. Now, your name means happy and blessed. Now, Eve, we know the name Eve. There's, there's a story in the Bible about a, about a woman named Eve and an unfortunate uh, bit of fruit. Um, your parents want to redeem that name, okay? So that's part of why they named you Eve. Eve also means life-giving, giver of life. Now, whew, let's see. When you were born, you were born into a tub. I'm not talking to the rest of people because that might be too much information. But a tub and your daddy caught you. He did so good that the midwives talked about it even days later. Yes. Your mommy said this is the hardest thing she has ever had to do, but it only took like, what, four hours, eight hours? Birth. Delivery. Nine hours. Yeah. She said it was really, really hard, but you came really, really fast. Yes, you did. Now, in talking to, have you guys seen her? Just checking. Okay. (laughs) Just checking. All right. In talking to your folks, they talked about how you are bringing people together. But more than that, you're bringing healing to people. And it started with bringing some healing to your mom and dad. Because they, uh, you'll hear this story someday, but they lost a baby before you. And it was really, really hard on them. And there was a lot of grief. And that grief took a toll as individuals and also on their marriage. But you helped bring healing to that. I've also been bringing healing to their friends and family, to a neighbor who lost a baby at one month. You have been living into your name already at five weeks, bringing a blessing and life to people, bringing healing. And that is your parents' prayer that from here on out, you would bring that. That's a big prayer. But you're a little person, and God is a big God. And together, if we're living a holistic faith, all of us can help point you in the right direction. Sound good? She said yes. Yes, indeed. So I'm going to give her back, okay, because she didn't cry, and I'm going to keep that record. Yeah. Perfect. Now, she might be a little bit tired, so if she needs the binky, there you go. Yeah, thank you. 
you bet. I'm going to ask you four questions. Um, you know these questions, and as I said uh, to those also up here, don't need to answer, but they involve you guys just as much. DJ and Elizabeth, do you, in the presence of God and this church, solemnly dedicate Gwyneth Eve to the Lord? We do. You do. Will you endeavor to live a holistic life of faith before her that gives witness to your faith in Jesus Christ? Do you believe in the Old and New Testaments as the Word of God? And out of them, will you strive to teach little Gwen the commandments and promises of the Most High God so that early on she may come to a saving, living, and holistic faith in Jesus Christ? You will. First Church, you have heard their commitment, and you have also heard their cry for help, their recognition of the necessity of you guys to help raise this daughter in the faith. So as a sign of your commitment, I'm going to ask you to stand... And I'm going to ask you to hold your hands out, figuratively laying hands on Gwen. And I am going to pray a prayer for her that is based out of the Apostle Paul's church to the book in Colossians, because I just think it fits. So let's pray this prayer of dedication. Little Gwen, we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. So we ask God to give you a complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will honor and please the Lord, and your life will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, our prayer for you is that you will grow to learn, uh, you will grow to learn to know God better and better. In this, you will be strengthened with God's glorious power and have all endurance and patience that you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father, for He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to His people through His Son. Lord God, we are grateful for Gwyneth Eve. We're grateful for the joy and the healing that she has already brought. And Lord, we're grateful for the life that, uh, that she has ahead of her. We recognize her as a gift. DJ and Elizabeth recognize her as a gift. And as such, we dedicate her back to you. She is from you and for you. God, the same way Christ was dedicated in the temple, we dedicate Gwyn. And we look forward to how, as a body of faith, you will help us raise her in the ways of, of the Lord. We pray, Lord, for her parents, that you would give them grace and patience with her, that you would help them constantly do what the Shema talks about and talk about you, live you, and demonstrate you. Father, this is your little girl. And as such, we dedicate her in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. You guys go ahead and stay standing because Tim is right up there. He's going to start strumming really, really shortly, and we're going to sing one last song together.